Would you or anyone you know be interested in the best of what we've learned from over 350 expert interviews? Business expert interviews just like this one you're about to listen to. Plus, I'll share what we discovered spending $50,000 to go through over 100 years of business success research. Thousands of evidence-based scientific studies on what really works. Visit bestbusinesscoach.ca for more info on how, in 90 days or less, you can get eight better business habits or get three times your money back. That's 90 days to eight types of better business, fitness, and mindset habits. These will determine who survives and thrives in these unusual times and who doesn't. Visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. You'll discover our new business coaching and accountability program for business, fitness, and mindset all in one. You'll also learn how you can get over $11,336 in free bonuses for only $1. Go to bestbusinesscoach.ca for more info. That's bestbusinesscoach.ca, like Canada or California. See you there. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by journalist, lecture, uh, journalist, lecturer, historian, and founder of the Canadian Patriot Review, Matthew Eric. And his work has been featured in a lot of different publications from Global Times, Strategic Culture Foundation, 21st Century Science and Technology, Los Angeles Review of Books, Zero Hedge, on and on and on. He's a regular on Rogue News, uh, One News Network, and Tactical Talk. And in 2019, he authored the three-volume Untold History of Canada series. And he recently co-founded the Montreal-based nonprofit Rising Tide Foundation. Its focus is to promote humanist education and intercultural dialogue. So I first saw him during the grandjury.net trials, and I loved his insights and how well-researched he was. And so I've asked him to join us here today to help us understand the historical background of the times we find ourselves in and hopefully see how uh, we as business owners can help direct where the world is going. So Matthew, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. How are you doing? It's a, it's a pleasure to be on and I'm doing really well. Thank you. Good. Yeah. We've been having some pre-record talk. It's been going great. We're like, we just got to hit record. But Matthew, <laughs> before we get into any of that stuff we were already talking about, how did you get on this path you're on now? Like, is this like the family interest? Is this your own? Like, how did you even get yeah. in? Because yeah, you, you've, you've really hit some deep nerves on some really relevant issues and sure. where does that come from? I guess, yeah, in a summary way, that, that's appropriate, a few words of, of my own background. Um, so I myself have an arts background of all things, you know, so I was actually in film, uh, media film uh, animation in university and I found myself um, doing some research on, uh, on a documentary at one point that involves digging into the story of 9-11, um, which involved also stumbling, as many people do, upon uh, alternative narratives, which persuaded right. me that what I was being told was a crock of shit and uh, put me on a different path of exploring what was really going on. And obviously that that's a popular gateway I've noticed for a lot of people who just sort of like woke up the 9-11 the jolt was a big one. And, you know, it wasn't long before, you know, you encounter that there's a broader historical story than the one you were told in school or that's popularly believed, which right. takes you into curatorial and I think the correct way of looking at world history uh, from the standpoint of um, coherent intentions. And, you know, anybody who says that there's no such thing as conspiracy theories are just pr pretty much just admitting that they don't believe in causality or ideas that are knowable, Um that's pretty much all it is because conspiracy is just people for good or for bad. There's bad conspiracies and there, there's good conspiracies. And it's just people who are more than one or two people getting together with a common intention to achieve right. something that has that hasn't happened yet. 
right. uh, you know, big or small, there's small conspiracies where just the act of agreeing with a few friends to meet up uh, to plan a club or to build a house, that's a, a sort of low level conspiracy. The more right. power you have, the more you can have more elaborate uh, forms of action. And uh, at the upper echelons of history, you have always had um, elites striving to achieve desires that are increasingly transgenerational. And uh, when you when you take that into consideration, um, things are come into focus and are are they start fitting in a cohesive tapestry a lot better. You you get better sense of what was the American Revolution all about. Why did every eight American presidents who died in office? What were they doing? Was the, there a common thread um, mm. between the death of, you know, I don't have to, I'll list them here, fine. Um, you know, the, the death of, of Her William Harrison in 1840, Zachary Taylor in 1851, uh, Lincoln in 1865, of Garfield, then McKinley in 1901, of Warren Harding uh, in 1923, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in 1945, who never had an autopsy. Um, JFK, his brother right. Bobby, who was going to become president. Is there something common that they're all activating, a certain policy um, internally, domestically, as well as foreign policy that they're all tapping into that has something to do with the Constitution? Because there is. And yeah. so when you start getting that sense, then not only do you have a sense of what are, um, I mean, that was for me, at least my experience, I started getting a sense of, okay, well, what was, what was, the meaning of the Federal Reserve, right? We know the bad things have now a deeper meaning and a context. What about, and, and the Federal Reserve was a bit of a, a, a coup d'etat. What, what, right. what happened after Bobby Kennedy was killed and Kissinger removed the dollar or Kissinger, George Schultz came in with a trilateral commission under Nixon and then Carter right. um, and removed the dollar from the gold reserve standard, right? The fixed exchange rate in 1971, which created a new, a new type of paradigm Right. of banking and finance that was never seen before that time of worshiping money, thinking myopically, living in a consumeristic sort of hedonistic ethic instead of being a producer society, which we once were. That whole mm. idea of deregulating everything according to a new type of uh, consumer society cult became um, what took over the minds and morals of our economy, which led for 50 years now up until the present into a, a total self-destruction, right? So people say, oh, globalization failed. It, it promised world cooperation and uh, prosperity and free enterprise. And as, it's, as, it, uh, as it happened, the opposite occurred. There's been more poverty. The U.S. infrastructure right. has atrophied. We've outsourced our industries, our manufacturing that we once had are all gone. We've yeah. become addicted to cheap labor and sweatshops that, you, that are doing the things we used to do at high tech now for low, low labor and low pay. Yep. Um, and now we've we've got instead of of an economy, we have this giant multi headed uh, too big to fail Hydra telling governments that you have to bail us out by printing infinite hyperinflationary money to keep us from collapsing because we're too big to fail. Right. Um, and a giant bubble, which used to be the economy. Now it's just this big derivatives fueled speculative behemoth of what yeah. is one plus quadrillion dollars of fictitious capital. Right. Um, right which is a time bomb. It's not an economy. And that is what is being uh, pinpricked right now as all bubbles will inevitably pop. Huh. The, the question now is what will be the, the new economic architecture? And you asked me about myself. So just to say um, that was sort of a, a quick set of discoveries that sort of hit me over the course of a few years from 2003 until 2006. And I began to get a little bit more politically active with uh, an organization that, was, that had a branch in, in Montreal, which is where I was based. 
uh, called the Schiller Institute. And I started working with them, setting up diplomatic conferences and seminars to sort of try to organize for um, a variety of policies that I, I liked. And I still do think that they they could work. I, I don't know if there's a, the political will to do them, but um, certain things like, you know, uh, declaring a debt jubilee, utilizing the nation, yep. the, po- the power of sovereign nation states to, to declare that the unpayable debts are unpayable. Right. Um, emit national banking. So start utilizing the Bank of Canada to emit credit for the development of our infrastructure the way we used to, but we don't anymore. So I started doing things like that. And there was a vacuum. So it's a, the organization itself was US based. Uh, I was affiliated with the recently pa- deceased American economist named uh, Lyndon LaRouche. He died in 2019 at the age of 96. And um, the the small group I was a part of in Canada didn't really have much material put together. There wasn't much resources or research done on the oligarchical controls of Canada. So we were very easy. It was easy to talk about the situation of the USA, but it wasn't easy to talk about why is Canada a monarchy? Why? What is the nature of the deep state in Canada? It wasn't called that back then, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So it was difficult to chart out a policy that was useful or that could recruit or inspire my fellow Canadians to act in accordance with anything. Because it's like, okay, it's it's all well and good that, let's say, Bush is an asshole and Obama should be impeached. But I mean, that doesn't really move a Canadian. There's not much you can do with that as a Canadian. I started a project with a few of my collaborators um, around a, a Canadian history project to piece together some of that secret history which came together really nicely, very quickly, um, in the form of a completely new narrative, uh, a reconstruction of Canadian history from the standpoint of recognizing that there is this oligarchy that's always been there, that's been trying to undo the American Revolution. And from that standpoint, we were able to answer such questions like, why did, why is it that, that Canada, fa- or at the time, Quebec in 1776, failed to accept the Benjamin Franklin challenge to be the 14th member of the 13 colonies declaring independence? You know, Ben Franklin was up here where I live, uh, 20 minutes away from where I live right now. He was up here for five for four weeks um, in May uh, 1776, trying really hard to get us on board with signing the Declaration of Independence and fighting together. And uh, due to a series of of bribes, threats um, and other, you know, Freemasonic and other Jesuitical operations that were deeply enmeshed in the French Canadian governing class after the defeat of the French in the Seven Years War. Um, it, his his plans were subverted and he left disheartened um, and we remained loyal to the crown. And since that time, you know, we've been really this geopolitical wedge used by the, the crown to, on the one hand, undermine the national uh, nationalist leaders within the United States. I mean, Lincoln's assassin was deployed from Montreal, Canada, John mm. Wilkes Booth. Um, this Confederacy had their their intelligence uh, operations heavily uh, based here in Montreal and Toronto, running terrorist operations against Lincoln throughout the the entirety of the Civil War. Uh, JFK's assassin uh, assassination was coordinated from Montreal, Canada, too, by Permindex. Um, so we we started filling up a lot of the story and much more, and that resulted in the need to create a platform to because I mean, no, the question was. Okay, we've got all of these amazing this this these amazing yeah. discoveries, but who's going to print it? Who's going to read this? Yeah. Um, so I created uh, the Canadian Patriot Review for that purpose in mid two thousand twelve, 
Um, and then from there, we were able to tie in some economic analysis. We had a better picture of like what was Canada's role geopolitically and economically today within the great game. And uh, that just grew and it manifested into a, a book series as well, The Untold History of Canada. And, and then increasingly, the, un, the Clash of the Two Americas. That was another book series we just published. So that's that's sort of what we've been doing. That's that's my my little mini origin story, I guess. That's that's fantastic. Thank you. And to help people understand and and. Let me know if I got this right, at least as far back as what I understand, from what I understand from having listened to your other talks. Uh, and I have some friends, when I told them I was interviewed, they, they started, they, it was funny, they started sharing, you got to listen to this, and it was your YouTube channel, I guess. And uh, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm actually interviewing this guy. They're like, well, that's great. But as far as what I understand, if we go back to Britain colonized the planet, and this is great because you have lots of different people, large groups of people, which used to be one of the greatest forms of leverage, having other people do work, which you reap the rewards for. Uh, all those riches funnel back to the city of London, if I'm, if I'm correct. And that was kind of the financial hub for the planet, essentially. That was the operating room, you could say, headquarters for all these colonies. But now you have people in these colonies that want more rights. They want this. They want that. And, yeah. you know, they don't want to be bothered with having to try and deal with these issues, the nitty gritties. They're like, we'll give you your independence. We're just going to keep a hold of the actual reins of control. And so all these countries get their independence and now they're democratic, but really the city of London and a few bloodlines from the city of London kind of held on to these strings, which I think is translated into sort of the banking cartel or what people call the banking cartel now. And through that and, you know, and that slow mundane process of, you know, of, of, of public policy and politicians and that they just kind of keep trying to push for this agenda of maintaining really what was, you know, the, the domination of the planet years ago. And they're just really trying to hold on to that up until now. And if I understand correctly, that's kind of the deep state, if that makes sense. And, and it all really kind of ties back to the city of London. And I mean, maybe even before that, but the city of London and the planet. Yeah, yeah. Is, is that, is that accurate? Am I way off? I'm trying to give a, a no, you're good. You're good. You got it. No, you've got the synthesis of the, the general, what I, you know, you, the Germans call this a gestalt, right? A, a thought concept, okay. a thought mass, um, okay. um, which has a certain integrity, a certain whole, you got it um, in a simple okay. way. Um, obviously it can be elaborated upon any element can be unpacked. And obviously, yeah, right. like the city of London itself is a weird beast. Um, just like today, it's the sort of center of command, a nerve center of international finance, the regulation of global derivatives. It operates out of the city of London in many ways, like through the uh, financial stability board that's tied to the, the Bank of International Settlements itself. Um, even though it's based in Basel, it's, it's entirely a creature of the city of London, the Bank of England of uh, Montague Norman in the 1930. Who put this thing online as a as a way to sort of bring about originally they say the, the to facilitate the repayment of uh, of versailles treaty debt repayments but the reality was always to provide a mechanism to fuel and fund uh the growth of fascism uh, that's how hitler was able to gobble up uh czechoslovakia poland all the countries um was was through the support of the bank of international settlements that ensured that all of the funds of each country went quickly into nazi coffers um and it continued to essentially provide it's sort of the central bank of global central banks, right? The Federal Reserve, all the international private central banks conglomerate around the, the, the Bank of International Settlements and the FSB, which was run by people like Mario Draghi. Um, th then afterwards, uh, Mark Carney, both of them being World Economic Forum trustees, both of them are being are devoted uh, 
globalists who are pushing against the nation state system to, you know, get across this great reset ideology of use this crisis as an excuse to reduce global uh, population um, mm. using the twofold crisis of COVID and uh, and uh, and climate change, which they're saying now is a great opportunity, you know, the great reset. Now we can tackle both these things and and right. finally decarbonize the world, get around sustainable development, get the Paris Accords across. And that's what Draghi, that's what Carney have been always priests uh, assigned as mercenaries, you could think of them, uh, to accomplish. Um, so the bank, yeah. I mean, the Bank of England, the, the the city of London, it's 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 not a new problem. It's been around going back as, you know, you, we were talking about the American Revolution. It was still the nerve center of, of global finance back then. And it's been, it, it was, it existed for hundreds of years before that with its own separate government. It's like a private corporation, a city, mm-hmm. it, it's like a, a square mile within London. It's not London. It has its own police force, its own judiciary. Yeah. Um, it's, it's above the law in many ways, but it is, and it's also what coordinates a lot of the offshore money laundering operations that have been created in the 20th century, like the Cayman Islands, the Isle of Man, other things, uh, that process international drug flows that also provide a certain clandestine funding for terrorist operations in South America, in the Middle East, it's tied to the Saudi banks. Increasingly, though, they're all, they're even going a bit renegade under the uh, the new the new <laughs> geopolitical situation now arising. But that's a yeah. whole other side story. Um, the the key thing I would just keep in mind for people who are listening it's that it's not the British when I say, you know when people think of British Empire taking back control of the U.S. or undermining or under undoing the American Revolution, which sort of is true. It's really that it's not the British people. It's not even the British government because there have been British leaders um, who have resisted this. Right. It, it just as interested in killing poor British people as it is poor Africans or Irish. Right. Um, and in many ways, the British itself the, was taken over um, in 1688. So before that, there was nationalist, a powerful nationalist humanist current active in the leadership of Britain before it became an empire who had been trying to facilitate the, the growth of a new republic in the colonies of the Americas 100, 100 years before the American Revolution. Um, This is why you had, you know, the Republican Revolution of um, for 10 years, Britain was a republic in the 1640s under Cromwell. Um, And, you know, the 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 king of Britain losing his head. Now, that turned into a bit of a a chaotic mess at a certain point. But regardless, it demonstrated for the first time that there was this ability to uh, get rid of the the hereditary structures of rule by kings and monarchs and and inbred elites. And institute an elected type of government by representation, which had never been done before. So that was sort of the first attempt. Um, and before that, if if you look at well, where was the center of global evil, the center of the uh, the oligarchical hive at that time in the 17th century, it wasn't Britain yet. Um, it was Venice. Venice oh. ha- was for a thousand years after the collapse of Rome, when Rome sort of collapsed under its own self contradictions and immorality the ruling families, the ruling oligarchy migrated to and reconstructed their operations in the lagoons of Venice, which again, from like the sixth century, early seventh century, all the way up until the 15, 16, 1700s, was a center command point of international maritime trade, international choke points, this little city state of Venice, center of evil. They controlled international bullion. They provided the intelligence operations for, um, the Mongol uh, hordes that had been taking over increasingly, you know, big yep. chunks of the world, 
the the Venetian traders were the only groups that were allowed to have trading authorization through Mongol controlled territory. And uh, they weren't doing that for free. They were doing that because they're in exchange for vital intelligence because they ran a, a, a Freemasonic styled um, intelligence operation embedded through all of the courts of Europe. They had all of the best psychological profiles of kings, of dukes, of courtiers, uh, weak points in different cities that they were able to centralize and deploy to their uh, end. And one of the rules of the, the Venetian Empire is a rule called Tertius Gaudens. Um, the third that, that gains. And the, the objective was always to separate the cause of action, which is the oligarchy and their intentions from the actual effects of the action. So get second, third, and fourth intermediaries to carry out the, the work, to do the dirty work without even knowing what they're doing on behalf of the causal agency. So the what, more degrees what is of- the rule? What's um, the rule called? It's, this is a technique called Tertius Gaudens, the third that wins. The third that wins. So it's yeah, by so, having, it's almost like a mafia thing where it's, it's not, you know, like, a, yeah, it's like, it's, it's two levels removed from you. Like you can't be connected to that because it's, you're, you're yeah. not, you're not involved. You're walking your dog. It's like American gangster, Denzel Washington kind of thing. Like he's walking his dog and going to church, but you know, but he's actually the command, uh, commander of all this nefarious stuff that's happening going on. This exactly. Is, and, and that's a simplistic that's a simplistic form of, of the model that's been deployed. And, and that's the way the oligarchy works. They, they, they want their imprint, their own, the way that they organize themselves is what is imprinted on everything that they're influencing in the system, all the way down to your local right. thug, you know, right. um, and, you know, high school dysfunctionality in the, in the, in the cafeteria um, and like little mini local gangs and cliques, um, which is yeah. really what is, is what is operating in, in all of the inner cities of the world. Um, so, yeah, so, and they're just very elaborate at, uh, elaborate at doing what they're doing. So there's many degrees, but there's always, at the end of the day, a causal agency. And that's where people get confused because when they try to use a, 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 a lazy-minded method of trying to piece things together, they direct, often will direct, get yeah. derailed you know, right. along right, the right, way. Right. And then you, you start talking about, like, lizard people from another dimension who are trying to suck your fear energy and shape-shifting and stuff. Yeah, this, yeah. that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um that's that's a whole that's a whole another bag of worms we're going to stick with yeah. the things that would make sense because <laughs> i consider myself just as monkey with a smartphone trying to figure out the world and you know oh and don't get me wrong I'm, I'm not trying to say that i believe in that i'm just saying that that's, no, no, that's I know. the crazy I know. shit that's that's thrown out there to deflect people's mind as a minefield which also also makes conspiracy theorizing uh it gives it a bad name because people right. are like Oh yeah, 9-11, Okay, maybe that was an inside job. Maybe yeah. um, there's this bankers conspiracy. Maybe, but once but it gets too hear- wild, they just shut you out. Like that is just complete nonsense. And then, and then the whole the baby goes over the bathwater. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm fascinated by this. I'm fa- I'm fascinated by this whole topic because I spent fifty thousand dollars, about fifty thousand dollars, end of 2020, beginning of 2021. Everyone was arguing about the science, and I grew up. My step adopted dad was a geophysicist. So I grew up with like knowing geology and the history of rocks and, you know, and, and, and carbon dating and that, and, and then physics, applied physics, like real, like hardcore, hard sciences. You know, I was debating about mass and lockdowns and vaccines. And so I always thought, well, what does the science say about business? So I spent 50 grand hiring seven different researchers slash research teams to help me do basically a systemic review of all the whole body of literature, all the meta-analyses that we could get a hold of, all that stuff. And we came up with eight critical success factors, but there's actually a ninth. And the ninth was government economic conditions. But we've kind of 
not looked at that much because we said there's nothing really you as an individual business owner are going to do to impact economy and the government policy. And so we focused on the eight. And for people that care, you know, self-efficacy, strategic planning, market intelligence, marketing strategy, sales strategy and skills, money management, business operations, and business intelligence. Those are the umbrella category. Cybersecurity fits under business operations. Leadership training fits under self-efficacy. Negotiation skills. Those are the big umbrella topics. But part of why I wanted to talk to you is because more and more increasingly, I've recognized that, that, that I mean, we can only focus on what we can focus on, but we, we have to do something. We can't just sit by and just passively accept what's happening when certain, you know, with the economy, with the government and the people that are pulling the big levers. It has, you know, massive impacts on our businesses. All these small businesses have been wiped out all over the planet. And so that's kind of why I want to talk to you about this historical context, you know, Everybody knows the mainstream narrative. So I wanted to speak to you to present something for people to consider, as well as talk about some instances of like, what has worked in combating this historically? How have people pushed back? Who are the people that have had what seems like, because you, you in, in going through and, and doing all this research, you've probably seen a bit of a back and forth, unless it's been a consistent march forward for the bad guys, so to speak. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, that's one of the most empowering things to look at history from this vantage point is that you start seeing that the this the bad guys, so so to speak, uh, this this continuity of intention, which is a very poisonously ugly and uh, bad intention, is has a lot of Achilles' heels in it. It's weaker than it wants to project. So it project. It's all about illusion and projection of narratives and projection of imagery but it is defined of a higher natural law, higher reality. It doesn't believe in reality. It believes in the, like this Nietzschean ethic of will to power, right? My, my, the only truth is the truth imposed by those who have the power to impose mm. their will onto the weak. It's a mm. very low level um, view. And every time that they try to achieve, it's not like what they're doing today to get like a post nation state technocratic feudal depopulated era it's not right. like this is a new thing. It's not like this is the first time it's been tried. It's been tried many times. Um, it, the question is, why has it not succeeded um, mm. again and again? And I think it's useful to, to take the time to study and read uh, those periods in history where they came close but failed to achieve those desires. And what was it that thwarted those uh, desires? Um, I think one good example um, in recent times would, or actually, you know, we've been talking about Venice. Let's just continue that for a second. And then we'll jump to the present. Um, there was a moment when Venice realized that it was much weaker than it thought it was, than it, it realized it saw itself as the center of global control. And this is around 1508. And you had something called the league of Cambrai. Uh, the league of Cambrai was set up at a moment when all of the warring countries, because Europe was only known for mostly war for hundreds of years uh, between different factions um, fight, vying for territory, um, little bits of land, little bits of, of their local self-interest control. And they were very easy to, they're very quick to go to war. Um, and all sides you'll find were receiving their loans from the same bankers in Venice. Venice was the center yeah. of command. This is before the Bank of England was created. Right. Um, and they took over the British uh, in 1688. Okay. Um, the, the moment that they, the fighting stopped was a period where a bunch of the leaders, the, the statesmen, uh, Erasmus being one of them, Thomas More, um, Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci himself, and Machiavelli were, were played a very important role in this. Um, they basically I love da Vinci. organized. 
Yeah, Da Vinci himself, he, he worked closely with Machiavelli in Florence to uh, fight off the Venetians and their, their proxies. Um, but they organized in 1508 what's called the this League of Cambrai, where they all said, okay, let's just stop killing our, our, ourselves for a few minutes here. Let's talk with each other. And they all realized that they're all being manipulated by the same Venetian hand in the Lagoon. Mm. Okay. And the, the League of Cambrai got together as a peace treaty, and, and they, they formed a military alliance where they destroyed the Navy of Venice in a fell swoop. It was great. And the oligarchy in Venice had not a lot to defend itself with. They were right before they could go down with a second swipe and completely wipe this evil from the face of the map. However, um, some very fishy, weird um, operations were conducted that I don't, I've written a paper on this. I think some of the evidence has been, has been ripped or burnt out of history yeah. books, but regardless, something weird happens. All of a sudden, the Pope, a corrupt Pope, I think it's Julius II, decides to break break the the treaty. He he brings with him the the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian, um, who runs pretty much the area of Germany, which is like two thousand little mini dukedoms. Uh, he brings okay. that with him, and all of a sudden they have an alliance with Venice, and all the whole thing breaks down. And increasingly they all start declaring war on France and and Florence. And everybody all of a sudden is like all fighting each other. And Venice is like all of a sudden they've avoided being killed. And they're all of a sudden everybody's trusted ally w- w- two years later. Yeah. And you're like, what the hell happened? Yeah. <laughs> right? that, and it just shows you how good they were at back channel uh, corruption and um, backdoor dealings that that really I mean, it was a wake up call, though, for them. And it was at that point that you had. A, a, an attempt to sort of move into a, a more strategic location and that became the british first it was the dutch area the the netherlands were, were first infested and there was a sort of migration of the key families and their trusts and banking operations to the netherlands okay and they created the the world's first official central private central bank called the bank of amsterdam in 1609 and then from there, there was an ongoing effort to then transplant themselves into uh, Britain, which uh, happened about 80 years later. And um, mm. so, okay, on the one hand, what is it that is the, was the weakness of empire there? It was people who all of a sudden realized that they had to get over their differences and talk with each other <laughs> and realize that you're, you're all being manipulated. The second yeah. example of them failing to achieve their, uh, their desires was um, at a moment when the American Revolution was launched. And the American Revolution was not what people think it was. You had, the only way it could have succeeded was by having an international coalition of like-minded people. And this includes the leadership of Russia that created the League of Armed Neutrality around Catherine the Great, who worked very closely with Benjamin Franklin through her sister who headed the uh, the Academy of Sciences, Ekaterina Dashkova. And that was what got, the League of Armed Neutrality, which guaranteed a flow of, of arms and goods to the American colonies and um, and involved a variety of nations who all realized that they had to, they were all being screwed over by the British Empire. Um, you had also Tipu Sultan, um, who was a Indian uh, Muslim revolutionary in uh, southern India, who was writing letters to the Continental Congress of George Washington saying, we're in this together as brothers. Um, and a win in America is a win for India. And what Tipu Sultan was doing was fighting the British. And in his battle for, for it was a 15-year battle with Hyder Ali, his uh, father, where they, uh, they fought the British and they absorbed 20% of the, the British Navy that was forced to be redirected from the United States into uh, India 
to try to put down this rebellion. And this is what gave, again, the U.S. revolutionaries the, the edge that they needed to win. Um, you also had Morocco, the, the emperor of Morocco, Sidi Mohammed, organized a, uh, a, relate, um, a, a, a treaty with the, with the uh, rebellious Americans to protect them from Barbary pirates that were, were working with the British Empire. Um, and also, I, I obviously don't have, I shouldn't have to mention, but you had the French, the Polish, Marquis Lafayette, who were all working with the United States because they knew that if it was successful in the U.S., then you could have this new type of, yeah. of uh, society based on natural law replicate itself in France first, which was the biggest hotbed of republicanism. And if it was successful in France, then it could be replicated in Poland, in Spain, in Prussia, in other parts in Vienna, where you had similar uh, Republican-minded revolutionaries, people like Beethoven, Schiller. They were all um, of this view that humankind was destined for living in a, a brotherhood of cooperation that would transcend the limitations of this Hobbesian age of each against all, which had dominated society for thousands of years. Yeah, it was beautiful. But it was subverted. It was it was turned into a bloodbath. So where it was when it was finally attempted in uh, France, it failed to achieve what the U.S. Uh, thirteen Achieve. colonies were able to do, and that was largely. This is a chapter in my book on the two Americas. Um, it was largely because of British Freemasonic operations. Uh, a bunch of, I mean, I make the point that the French Revolution was soon turned into a color revolution, and all of Benjamin Franklin's uh, collaborators, like. Uh, Jean Sylvain Bailly, the the mayor of uh, Paris, who was the leader of the uh, the 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 l'Assemblée Nationale that declared um, a sort of constitution, a constitutional republic for France. He his head was cut off. All of the leading scientists and statesmen who had uh, really been the only ones qualified to lead that um, that rebellion were all had the mob turn on them, and because of, all of a sudden the mob was convinced that everybody everybody who was rich is all evil. And this became um, a, a battering ram to destroy the real revolutionaries and, and everybody, you know, the la revolution n'a pas besoin des, des scientifiques. The revolution does not need scientists. So everyone got their heads cut off. There was a big vacuum in leadership. And for five years, it was like just infighting until Napoleon, funded by the Rothschilds, was brought in as a fascist solution to fill the vacuum because the vacuum will always be filled. Right. And from that point on, you had a recipe for 20 years of constant war in Europe that destroyed any potential for Republican movements to exist in that form in Europe. Um, so again, it's history. You got to see it as like, it's not a finished product. The oligarchy often no, does all. not get their way, but oftentimes the, the, the higher destiny of humankind is subverted from coming into being when it should have. Right. And uh, if anybody wants to go into some more case studies, I won't go into that here right now, but my book volume two on the clash of the two Americas goes from, 1890 until the present and it looks at these four key moments where there were attempts at a new world order in 1919 1933 1940 1945 and the present and how those three moments before today's great reset how they were subverted why why they didn't work and that's very important to to strengthen the mind today to understand well what are the weak places in the system today why is it that the oligarchy is so afraid of the rise of this multipolar alliance led by Russia, China, India. Well, India is increasingly jumping on board. Iran is big time on board. And increasingly what we're seeing is like, not not everybody is in the same ship anymore as it used no. to be 10 years ago. You got yeah. split. 
Well, I, so, I really, that's really become prevalent. I mean, China and India is half the planet right there. And so, yeah. I mean, whatever they dictate, that's, that's, um, I love how you, you almost speak in citations. Like, I love this. You're like this event at this date, like you can, if you transcribe this, you could just hop through and research all those things. And that's part of why I wanted to have you on here because of that, because it's not just opinion. It's like, these are historical facts and they line up in this way. And sure, it's open to interpretation, but you know, no one's going to give gift you the education you need to take away their money and power. They're not going to be like, by the way, subordinate, here's what you need to know to replace me as your boss. Like that's yeah. never happened anywhere, yeah. right? A it's a succession yeah. plan. But even then, it's 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 not yeah. So yeah, um, I just love this. I love this so much. Um, go Ben. I didn't know Benjamin Frank. I knew Benjamin had done great things. You're you're hitting all my heroes here. Um, so okay, so it really sounds like, I mean, obviously spreading the truth, and it sounds like propaganda is like anybody that's in marketing advertising has to understand the power of the propaganda and maybe even um, work on how do you counter it. Because it sounds like, at least from what I heard, uh, I mean, there's back channel corruption that happened, but it also seemed to be really controlling the mind space. But in controlling the mindset of the large, largest, if you could control the mindset and the, the, the beliefs of the, the, the population, you could direct them as a mob against your enemies, essentially. And you could rally support. I mean, that's what's happening now, right? Trudeau is trying to rally support for Ukraine and we're going to defend democracy. Meanwhile, in Canada... Right. Let's let's declare an emergency. Uh, let's declare martial law over peaceful protesters. I mean, it, the hypocrisy is insane. Um, well, what you're saying there is so important because, yeah, the only way this works is to keep people in a state where their minds are so underdeveloped, their identities are so um, underformed that their subconscious influences are more powerful. Because the way yeah. that all of this Edward Bernays. Uh, mind space, mind wars type of uh, conditioning works is that it acts on subconscious impulses, fear right. of the unknown, um, reward and punishment, you know, a fear of being unliked by popular opinion, right? By your colleagues, your coworkers, your family. And if you could just create a sort of a group think, it will put, this is the way the, the programmers, the behaviorists who are trying to manage the nudging of society into a certain predetermined uh, direction, which is not in our interest, yeah. is that their view, they believe that humans will always override their own personal conscience in favor of being liked, of mm. in, in, in fear of the pressure of what others will think of you if you say something that is out of place. And, uh, and it often works, but it only works if you are not, if you don't have true knowledge, which is um, centered and foundational to a strong sense of self-identity of you in a broader process. If, you, if that's shaky, you will tend to um, go with the masses. Exactly that. Yeah. Huh? yeah. You, you tend to go with the masses. We call that social proof. Masses. Social yeah. proof. I mean, they do that all the time testimonials, personal stories. It's a huge influencer, you know, do like others do um, type thing. So it really sounds like the only way to combat that is through really helping people have a strong understanding and sense of identity, right? Like yeah, they go together, right? Your, 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 understand, your ability to understand that which is outside of yourself um, comes from having an internal subjective inside yourself development. Because we look at the outside world through the filter of our subjective being. Our, our, right. our, it's colored by our feelings, by our, our sense of, of self-worth. 
And, um, and so that, that's where, you know, because you wonder like, well, how is it that somebody can go from a state of ignorance of something into a state of knowledge? It seems like there's like this, is it just this gradual state of like, here I was ignorant, less ignorant, less ignorant, less ignorant. Now I have knowledge in a gradualistic Darwinian way. It's like, no, it never happens that way. It, 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 there's a process of, of research. You're hungry, you're hungry. And you're, and there's like a eureka moment. If you do it right, there's, there's like this nonlinear leap of a flash of insight on different degrees of amplitude, but it's like, oh, it's, 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 it's not gradual. There's a leap. And how, how is it that you discover the, that, 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 which that truth that you didn't know, how is it that you discover it outside of yourself that you're like, okay, now I recognize it. That's the truth I was looking for when you've never seen it before. You have to have an internal standard to measure it against of something truthful inside yourself that you're like, okay, that measures up with my, what I've already discovered. There's a certain similar form to how my mind works when it's being healthy um, that I'm seeing now outside of me. And I can now judge the wheat from the chafe, you know, accordingly and build on that. It almost seems like you need the ability to have the luxury of time to do that. I think that's part of where, because of the pandemic and so many people are stuck at home, I think something they didn't anticipate was a lot of really smart people suddenly had extra time on their hands and they weren't distracted by the rat race. And so one of the things that, how do we, what do we have in control is really having a big focus on food, water, shelter, stability, security, because now you're not so worried about having the, I mean, I've made, this isn't a brag, but I've helped people make millions of dollars. I've never bought a nice fancy car because it just didn't, wasn't a value to me. I mean, I, I was really interested in making a lot of money until I remember one day, I mean, it's not a lot of money, but I remember the first day I I cashed a $25,000 check in my bank account, I went to Jamba Juice, got a smoothie. I went and bought a $20 hat, or no, I bought a $10 hat and a $20 pair of shoes. And like, I just went home and went about my routine. And what the, what the security of the money was for me was like, I got rent paid for months, like that, that stability. And I think that, so some of this talking about that is for people to wake up, for people to, to be able to separate group think from reality and the proof and just even pay attention you can't be in this rat race if I got to get to work so I can spend all day distracted by these things to make the money, to put the food on the table. And so we can, we can not be homeless and that fear of that. And I think that that's a big part of it. And that comes back to, I always, always wonder why the British pound was worth so much compared to like in Vietnam, before this, I talked about, I spent a couple years in Vietnam, we would get someone to come and clean our house and it would cost like five bucks and they'd be there for four hours. And I'm like, why is their label? And I remember I was on Facebook one day and somebody posted in a group asking if $50 an hour is too much to pay someone to mow their lawn. And I was just like, like, what are you talking about? They're writing a writing lawnmower. Why is that person's labor worth more than this poor woman's labor here that came here? And why is that? And then a lot of it is financial control. If you're limited financially, you can't travel certain places. You're, I mean, there's, there's language barriers, but there's also really hard to pass financial barriers. There's a movie Justin Timberlake did, uh, In Time, that, t- that really demonstrates that well where you can't get to certain aspects of society because of financial hurdles, so to speak. You can't afford to go to that nice place. But mm-hmm. coming back, trying to get back to the main point, it sounds like people had to become aware. They had to talk and collaborate, work together, and have time and ability to focus on these things. And that yep. comes from making sure that people have food, water, shelter. And now we have inflation, rising prices, gas is going up. People, because there has been a big pushback and a great awakening, awakening but Now that people are like, I don't know if I can afford groceries anymore, I have less time to dedicate to that. And it's almost like that's almost the thing by helping feed 
and provide for the community the fundamentals of, of life that enables people to have the luxury too. I'm just spitballing here, but that's something that just, because when you're talking about it, it really seemed to be control of people's attention. And like you said, fear and keeping their fear off of survival. Yeah, yeah. Right, like yeah, to the degree. I mean, this is this has been known since ancient times of uh, the Roman or the Roman Empire, the Babylonian Empire. That if you can keep people in a state of fear, their ability to think creatively will be highly reduced. Uh, their ability to be suggestible is going to be highly increased, um, and you'll keep them divided to be to be better conquered. Right. Um, so that's that's it's been refined, but it's the same fundamental formula. Um, so the thing that's important is self discipline, self awareness to focus mm -hmm. on prioritizing that which has real value and and keeping us because we part of today's empire and 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 shackles aren't physical it was more easy to see them perhaps in the days of the slavery system in the u.s um yeah. where you could physically see your shackles today a lot of this is cultural right yeah. there's a lot of um hedonism there's a lot of um forms of uh, uh ephemeral pleasure placed within our our life to try to give us opportunities to escape because there's mm -hmm. a drudgery of living most people don't like their jobs so that's part of living in a in a fucked up world that's not going anywhere like it's a consumer society cult we're not building yeah. anything that has like great value like we yeah. used to so of course like you're you're being told okay adapt and be successful in this insane dysfunctional system and adapt to that yeah. so of course you know the fact that the fact that people are depressed is not a sign that there's a problem with them and it's not a sign right. that they should be on drugs the way that every school is giving kids drugs to better adapt them into the 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 hive yeah. it's a sign that yeah. they're sane and moral and that it's not natural to do this to think this way and to feel this way yep. so you know people have to sort of get a get a, a control of that reduce the joys or the the pleasures we get from the escapist uh trappings that have been placed in front of us like i mean the, the video game culture is a way big absorber of time and energy and it creates bad oh, yeah. addictions too. There's a reason why the military industrial complex generated the video game industry, uh, mm. DARPA. Um, the, there's so many distractions put in our, our field, which again, reduce our ability to take the time and just have this inner silence, the inner peace to read a book, to, to reflect, to develop our priorities and our sense of self, you know, um, which is so needed, especially if you got kids, you know, like the, the, yep. the best people I know, the best kids, are people who have been homeschooled they've got a good family unit um it doesn't yep. mean that if you don't have a good family unit that you're screwed it just means that those are the, it gives you all of the opportunities good foundations you need to have yeah, yeah that good foundation um an encouragement to find joy in the higher pleasures of discoveries of sharing discoveries learning to read with family you know and other things and friends um there's there's a whole set of emotions and and joys that is out of people's accessibility if they've been a, too well adapted to the hedonistic consumerist sort yeah. of culture you, you, you turn yourself into a pretzel to try to fit into the system when like yeah, who's, yeah I, I i fully get what exactly. you mean it's, it's 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 like you've never seen an imperfect cloud or an imperfect wave they just they just are and so yep. as humans we are but we twist ourselves into pretzels to adapt to this system thing and is it is it us that are flawed or is it the Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe, actually, who's a really, I, I did an essay, I'll send it to you, you might enjoy it. Um, he did Good. an essay right before he died. He's probably assassinated, actually, in, in 1848. And it's called Eureka, his uh, considerations on the metaphysical and physical universe. It's a really wonderful essay. And in it, he's um, addressing exactly what we're talking about. And he's, he's basically saying within it, 
that up until now, human history has been caught with uh, two different false ways that they've that we've been told we're allowed to think in, in to uh, become mature adults and be a part of society. He said the first way is creeping and the other way is crawling. Uh, the mm. creeping method was what he refers to as the um, the a posterior a posteriori method of thinking of analysis of Francis Bacon. He calls him the hog, Bacon hog, um, which is that you know you you're allowed to use your senses in order to find patterns that you then call laws, and that's how you then navigate uh, through the world, in, mm. you know, from childhood to adulthood to death. Um, the other way, the the so that's creeping, and then there's the crawling way, which is the a priori method of what he calls Euclid uh, or Euclid, which is that you start with uh, abstract rules, laws that are uni- general generalities that you assume are true, but you cannot in, you cannot know that they're true. You have to just assume these rules are true, and then you use these rules to make sense of what your senses tell you. That's the other way of of thinking. And he says both ways are wrong. One just caused you to creep, one just causes you to crawl. And he says, this entire time, the reality is we've been told to creep and crawl to discover truth, whereas the reality is that we're a creature destined to fly, to soar. Mm. And that's soaring into Eurekas. Uh, so you can't make a, a Eureka by, by just doing this gradual crawling in the mud. You have to leap. Um, so we're a different type of species. And he uses uh, the case study in his essay of Johannes Kepler and how Kepler discovered the harmonic a relationship of the orbits of the planets way before we had any photographic or satellite imagery. Kepler used what limited data he could of the positions of Mars and a few other planets that, that we knew about at the time in the 1620s. And he was able to then discover his three fundamental laws, which are as applicable today as they were then 500 years later, 400 years later. Um, but his, the, the key to Kepler's discovery and, and, and Edgar Allan Poe even translates some of Kepler's work was he had um, a hypothesis that he got from reading Plato, a Pythagorean, a Pythagorean idea, which had never been proven, but it was always a concept that the planets had a, a musical harmonic relationship to each other mm. and to the sun, um, which could be demonstrable to the mind of human beings that were made in the image of God. And that's the proof that we're made in, in God's image is because we could discover God's musical creation because God is a composer, not this, this tyrannical force that just created rules for us to follow but rather is a active uh, creative agency and seeing mm. ourselves in the image of that is much more empowering and taps into a lot of this creative p- potentiality um, right. in, a, in a way, which only a Benjamin Franklin who discovered he made breakthroughs in every domain of human knowledge. We don't even, yeah. we're given a sliver of it or, or Da Vinci. They were, they all had that self awareness of themselves in relation to that idea of, of a creator. So Kepler proves it. He proved it's not just a theory. He demonstrates how, there is this geometrical harmony that creates these, these specific ratios um, that define the positions of the planets and the speeds at the quickest and slowest moments of each elliptical orbit and how they're related to each other. Um, uh, the Earth's orbit um, within the system is between me and Fa, me at its quickest, Fa's at its slowest on the aphelion and wow. perihelion. And, uh, and he can, this is the foundation for his third law of planetary motion, which is then later on ripped off and stolen ripped of its of its essence of its harmonic principles and just called a mathematical formula by isaac newton or isaac newton's handlers Mm -hmm. um that we're told we can just memorize in the form of the inverse square law 
with no sense of how this came into being. We're like, no, he's just a genius and Apple fell on his head and he made a discovery. And now you just have to memorize the formula and, and just, you, you can never know why it happened. Just memorize it and that's adequate. Remember, memorize no. the formula, that's right, yeah. yeah. That's why I kids do bad at school because they're like, I want to know why the formula is true. And the teacher's like, just memorize it. Just memorize memorize it, that's right. Mem- you don't need to understand and master it. You just need, you just need to regurgitate. That yeah. is and it gives um, you the illusion of knowledge, but not the real thing. And it creates a, a condition where people will then um, be more inclined once again to have their uh, their subconscious forces. So let's say somebody goes through um, that type of indoctrination process where you do rote learning all the way through university. You're just you're 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 being rewarded. You're being you're uh, you're rising in prestige in your university and academia. That's how you're excelling. You go into a job. And you've gone through this habitual way of just memorizing what authorities tell you is true. It works. And all of a sudden, new ideas. Let's say a, a young student comes, comes about. You're now 40, 50 years old. Maybe you're older. You've you spent your life thinking in these terms, right? And a new, a new uh, a student, a young person comes about with a new discovery that challenges your underlying system. Mm-hmm. Will you embrace it? Will you encourage that student? Or are you going to shut them down? Are you going to see it as a threat? Are you right? And that's how you'll find that uh, many people in the scientific community today, you're wondering like, how is so many PhDs going along with scientific frauds, whether on the climate issue, whether on the health issue, like that's how, that's how it's not specifically that they're in on a conspiracy. It's that they're, they're part of a cultural. They're protecting their social status. So I saw that in martial arts. I trained Greece Jiu Jitsu and, the Gracies in UFC proved that at least wrestling and, and maybe submission grappling are on one-on-one hand-to-hand combat are phenomenally superior to kickboxing, karate, all that stuff. But then you've got people that they've, they've trained and taught karate for 40 years. They built a school. They're putting their kids through college. They've got this. Are they going to sacrifice all that and go become a new student at this new thing? And I really feel that, that we have that. And I always said this, I could see the similarities in religion because like Judaism is the Old Testament, Catholicism is the old and the new, and Islam is the old, the new, and the Quran, you know? And it's like, Harry Potter 1 is the only true. No, Harry Potter 1 and 2. No, Harry Potter 1, 2, and 3. And um, <clears throat> I feel like it's like what you just said there. It's really just about control of what I've built. And the, va- you know, yeah, exactly. it served me well, yeah. Like Jeet Kune Do, right? Like this is what what Bruce Lee was innovating yeah. was he, yeah. he was just saying like let's take the best of everything. Let's not go with any one formal system. Let's just see right. what elements work well in everything and try to synthesize it into something which works. And yeah. of course, like all these people who have just spent generations maintaining the formula are yeah. uh, very threatened by this. Well, meritocracies um, are dangerous. The people that have that aren't high producers that aren't aren't proficient. You know, and that's a scary thing because you suddenly go from leading the pack to to a runt, and that's a very scary very thing. So, yeah, 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 this, exactly. This, this has been a great talk. We could go on for hours. I do want to respect your time. Um, might have to get you to come back on at some point. But uh, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? Oh man, we could <laughs> obviously unpack so much stuff. But I guess all that to say, the the issue of real um, economics. As, as people should take this opportunity of crisis now to realize is that it's not about um, how much you consume or how much money you make per se, it's what do you create? And do you have a system that values uh, bringing, encouraging the creation of new discoveries in every mm. domain? But not only that, 
because a new discovery doesn't have immediate value. It takes a while to figure out new ways to create mm -hmm. inventions that will give meaning uh, to that new discovery, whether it's in atomic physics, whether it's in electromagnetism, whether it's in health science, whatever, right? Um, that also requires a certain artistic uh, aspect too, because it's in the arts that we cultivate. It's the, that's the soil that we cultivate good fruit um, is in is in cultivating good uh, aesthetical sensibilities. These mm -hmm. these you know mm -hmm. th this sense of refined beauty, the ability to sense uh, an instinct of ugliness, because that's what a mm -hmm. lie is, mm -hmm. and, and it, it gives you an ability to have what's called insight, not just sight, but insight to see with the mind's eye, not just your eyes, and go mm -hmm. from under see with understanding, not just see with what ideology tells you to see through. Um, so having um, an appreciation for that is key. And that's why, again, reading the writings of orig like original writings of people who really made positive upshifts in world mm -hmm. history, like I've got Benjamin Franklin's um, collected works up there. I love that. Um, wonderful. Per I mean, that's a great investment to read his autobiography, even if you're to start it off. A great yeah. example of somebody who was a Renaissance man, right? It's not it's not like this is inaccessible. We all have elements of this embedded within us as a baby. And it's just a question of using our time well so that we can actualize this and ben franklin was like the best quality of capitalist you could imagine oh, like yeah. he, didn't, you know, he wanted people to make inventions and discoveries he himself had hundreds of patents he made it easy for other people to have patents to have opportunity to try your ideas out to have economic incentives um but it was always tied to the idea that you could both enhance the 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 free enterprise within society and people's individual bests, while at the same time enhancing the general welfare by investing always in public works. Mm. Like Ben Franklin was a big promoter of the Erie Canal, big projects that would then create a, 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 a field in which people could be engineers, build, you know, be rail entrepreneurs, build dams, build other things that would then enhance and, and help us find new talents to create a better division of labor, right? Um, by always introducing new discoveries into the economic system. And this is the only way that you're, if you're going to really want to refute somebody who believes devoutly in overpopulation being a problem, that we have to reduce the world population because the earth is limited, right? The resources are limited, space is limited, there's too many of us. A lot of people have this underlying belief. They're not bad people, but they don't know how to refute that. So if you want to, to refute it, you have to have inside of you what I just mentioned, what Benjamin Franklin understood, that you can only overcome the limits to growth by always encouraging the introduction of new discoveries into the system, which upshifts the yeah. system as a whole and allows us to have more people at a higher quality of life, not just on the earth, but as we green deserts, right? As we learn how to do this yeah. better and we learn how the, our relationship with the ecosystems really work in a creative way, because I don't think a desert should necessarily always be a desert just because it's yeah. a desert now. The Sahara yeah. 5,000 years ago was green and lush. So yep. why not yep. desalinate some water and bring it back, you know? Yep. And then as we do that, we could think, well, maybe look at the low level qualities of life on Mars, you know, single cell yep. organisms that might be there. Maybe there once was a, an ecosystem. Maybe we could find a way in maybe 80, 90 years to start producing oh, yeah. buds of trees. Or I'm, I'm excited for the future. We just got to get rid of these parasites uh, that are holding us back. The only thing so. holding us back. Yeah. Keeping us in a cage. Yeah. Um, so I think from that standpoint, when you hold this idea in mind, it's, it's easy. It's, it's easier to make sense of where the pathways towards a future exist today, because things, if you just look at, at what's immediately in, I know you're in the Philippines, but if you're, if you're, 
in much of the transatlantic part of the world and you just look in at the 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 shit show a dysfunctionality in the political structures oh, yeah. in our part of the world yeah. it's easy to get yeah. depressed but yeah. if you take a step back you look at the world as a whole within a broader context of world history past and future alike that's shaping the present moment of potential yep um you start seeing that okay there is a fight between two different operating systems and it's yeah. not determined which one is going to win. If the oligarchy had all of the power that they want us to believe that they have, they already would have won a long time ago. We'd already be yeah. dead. The fact that we're still alive, having this conversation is a testament to the fact that there is a, a, a very different um, resistance than people realize. And when you look again at the multipolar alliance today and the way economics and politics and security is organized around the Eurasian, greater Eurasian partnership, uh, which involves 140 plus countries involved with the Belt and Road Initiative, it's a completely different way of doing business yeah. than what we're we've been adapted to over 50 years of globalization. They're actually right. creating, like China has created, and I mean, criticize the deep state structures in China all you want. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to people listening right now because it's there. Right. There, there is a, there are fifth columns. There are deep states in Russia, in China, in every country. No country does not yeah. have fifth columns. Yeah. However. They are able to utilize powers of national banking to emit credit for large-scale infrastructure where they've been able to build 40,000 40, kilometers of high-speed rail um, in just 20, not even, 18 years. They're going to double that yeah. soon. They've got yeah. programs to, I mean, build the biggest tunneling systems, the biggest bridges, dams, nuclear power plants, fusion energy investments, space tech, quantum computing, things that for us, it takes like... 10 billion dollars in 20 years to build an extra bus stop in montreal yeah. you know like yeah, yeah, they have yeah. the capacity of getting things done and all of the businesses if you look at the blossoming of entrepreneurs in china people say it's all this communist behemoth and yeah, no no, no they've, 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 they've married they've married state markets um, yeah they understand exactly. that they need a bit of both and they just but exactly. they're still trying to keep a cap on it and then anyways we, that's that's a whole other thing i know but i mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, obviously there's so many things that we talk, but I mean, at the end of the day, there's like, you know, uh, you have people like Jack Ma, they're multi-billionaires, who's kind of like a Bill Gates figure of China, um, who's a World Economic Forum trustee who called for an yeah. economic coup d'etat last year against China. And unlike us, who just let these World Economic Forum ghouls run us, there China actually had a nationalist movement that was able to take this guy out of his position, yeah. right? Yeah. Strip him of, of a lot of his, every one of his privileges. All of his statues have been taken down and thrown He's in the garbage. He's well, I mean, he's living in his mansion, and uh, yeah, I mean, they, they basically said you're going to live in your mansion, you're going to you're going to enjoy your your swimming pool, and uh, fuck off, like just you're yeah, not going to be yeah. a, a player at this point. Like right. you could have your you could have a, a couple of billion dollars, and uh, but you're not going to have any political influence because you just yeah. tried to call for an economic coup. Um, yeah. No, and George Soros, you know, like they told George Soros, multi billionaire speculator, sociopath Soros, that you're not allowed to be in our country since 1989. He's not been allowed mm -hmm. to set up an operation anywhere in China. Whereas here, he's running every single element Everything. of our culture, yeah, our yeah, education yeah. system, our judiciaries. I mean, it's creepy. So anyway, so we gotta uh, yeah. help wake people up. I think calls like this, I think, are helpful, and I think also just really supporting communities with the fundamentals of of to survive, so that way they can breathe a little bit. And I'm not talking about universal basic income. I mean. Like there's a guy uh, who's on our show. He's out of Quebec City. He created a, a product called O Garden. You plug it in your living room, it grows, grows food. You you put seedlings in the bottom and on the top, and it like self waters and lights itself. So I'm just thinking in terms of what is business. What do business owners need to do? You need to take care of your staff. 
you really need to focus on the fundamentals of food, water, shelter, and health. And then once you've got, once you're not so afraid of those things, now you're able to take on the bigger challenges of the world and help organize. Because if you're just running for paycheck to paycheck, trying to keep the lights on and worried about keeping food on the table, you're not going to be able to organize and, and have the resources to combat anything. So going back to base principles, that's really, I think, people listening to this call, what are you doing? And if you have a business and you are successful, how can you get back, give back, be involved in the community, create that security for the people around you to enable more people to become aware and to be join this? Because I think that's how that's how we win it and how we keep pushing forward. So well, okay. yeah, Matthew, appreciate this, right. my friend. It's been a pleasure. And Likewise. Uh, yeah. All right. All right. Okay. Uh,